You're listening to the Moments of Clarity podcast by Six Seconds Europe. Hello, my name is Fergal O'Keefe and you're very welcome to Season 2 of the podcast, where we will feature global experts on leadership, change and emotions, sharing their real-life experiences and how they've used emotional intelligence to see the world and themselves more clearly. Every Wednesday, I will ask my guest for three moments from their life that led to a light bulb moment of clarity on how to leave their life for the better. My guest today is Cormac Ryan, who has had an extraordinary life and he's still only in his 20s. Cormac has had a number of moments that have dramatically changed the course of his life, including finding he needed a cardiac pacemaker implanted when he was just 18 years old whilst playing minor hurling for Dublin, who got to the All-Ireland final that year. This year, he took part in the RT documentary Unspoken, which showed his journey from being diagnosed with an eating disorder to getting professional treatment. Then just a few weeks after completing that treatment, he undertook a cycle of 6,000 kilometres from Achill in the west of Ireland to Athens in Greece. But what shines throughout this episode is Cormac's will to overcome all adversity throughout his life and to help other people through his charity work who are going through similar issues in their lives. As you'll see now from this interview, Cormac is truly an inspirational person. Cormac, you're very welcome to the podcast. Great to see you. Thanks, you have had a unbelievably busy year. You got treatment for an eating disorder earlier on this year. You did a documentary. You're involved in that documentary on Spoken with RTE. Then you cycled 6,000 kilometers from Achill to Athens. So that's a very busy year. But before that, all of those things kind of feed into 10 years ago when you were 18. Yes. That's your first it's- moment of clarity. That is my first moment of clarity. Um, yeah, when I was 18, to kind of sum it up quite briefly, I, I ended up in coronary care in Bombay Hospital at age 18, um, diagnosed with a pretty serious cardiac condition and ended up having a pacemaker implanted. So, yeah, I suppose it was kind of the last thing you expect at 18, like to to get a phone call in town on a Friday afternoon and say, come up to Bowman Hospital as quick as you can. Um, and I even remember at the time, I didn't think much of it. I, I kind of thought, uh, I'll make my own way up in my own time. And I remember I went home and had food and um, they were phone rang again saying, where are you? Get up here as soon as possible. And again, still didn't think much of it. And I walked into A&E gave my name and went straight through a triage and they put me in a wheelchair they wouldn't let me walk up to coronary care and I remember sitting on the bed in coronary care with my dad still not really sure of what was happening and a consultant walked over and he shook my father's hand and he, and he said you must be Cormac to my father and I think if ever there was a moment of clarity in my life that was that was it it was oh SH1T, this is serious now because he thinks my father is the one with the issue. And that's when it really started to sink in, kind of like, right, maybe there is something wrong here. Maybe there's a reason why I'm in coronary care. And ultimately, two weeks later, I left with a pacemaker in my chest. Um, so, yeah, it was, it really makes you reevaluate 
absolutely everything for that to happen at 18 to kind of be confronted with your own mortality so to speak um, and it rocks you it rocks your world but you know it was interesting when you're telling a story to let people know so you were playing hurling at the highest level you were a minor for Dublin hurlers so you probably weren't even thinking about your health really were you that was your when you heard this it was hurling rather than long-term health yeah, hundred percent. Um, I suppose the context to that story that I've just told is important that you've given. Um, I was hurling at the highest level I could possibly be hurling at at the time, and I was obsessive about sport. I like sport was all I knew. Um, and all and and you're a hundred percent right in what you said. All I could think about when the consultant said we're going to have to put a pacemaker in, I wasn't actually concerned about the health of my own heart the muscle that keeps me alive I wasn't concerned about that all I was concerned about was can I play hurling again which is is quite a bizarre thing to say but that's it it, kind of goes to the whole thing of what you identify as or what is your identity as a human being and my identity was I am a hurler so it wasn't even about the health it was oh my god this could potentially take my identity away from me um but yeah just as you said the most surreal unexpected event and it really just caught me off guard and kind of made me kind of think right what is all this about what am I at here what am I if I don't have hurling um, and to be confronted with that at 18 was terrifying to be honest and he had, had you, was that the year that you you'd played no Ireland final you'd five so, months five months later so it was your your life everything revolved around your hurling so all of a sudden you because of this you were told that you couldn't play hurling again that must have been shocking oh it was horrific um i still remember the day they said they kind of tried to explain to me that contact sports and pacemakers don't go hand in hand and that it's not really advisable um and i was it was utter devastation is the only way i can start i still remember the feeling in the pit of my stomach when they said that to me i i don't think I, i've probably even to this day, I don't think I've probably ever been as inconsolable as, as anything, even with all the stuff that has happened since. Um, it was just heartbreaking. Um, it completely, like, because I'll, I'll give you a bit more context. I wasn't an 18-year-old that went out drinking down the road or I wasn't interested at this stage in, in girls or discos or nightclubs or anything like that. All I had was the hurling sir. That was it. And all of a sudden that was plucked away from me. And it was it was it was a moment of clarity in the sense that I kind of realized, oh, wait, this thing that I think I was or that I believe I am is now gone. And but it was kind of it it was a moment of clarity in a very negative sense in terms of it was the only thing I was clear about was that I haven't a clue where I'm going to go from here you know, or I haven't a clue what to do with my life or I haven't a clue what I am now. Um, yeah, it was just, look, I don't, I, I don't think there's any right or wrong way to process something like that at 18. And, you know, you said you spent years completing what I was good at, but what I enjoyed. What do you, do you mean by that then? That, that... Yeah, um, I suppose, luckily enough, I, I ended up getting back playing hurling despite the medical advice. Um, I don't know whether it was through ignorance or stubbornness, probably a bit of both. Um, and I, I went back playing hurling at a very high level. But it's funny, from the time I got the pacemaker, even when I got back playing, I never quite enjoyed playing hurling again. Never truly. 
um, it became this chore. It became something that um, even though I was good at it, I didn't particularly enjoy. And I think the reason was, was I got to pacemaker at 18 and it probably sabotaged my confidence and my sense of self-worth. And then what I started to do was I started to pin how well I played to my sense of self-worth and my kind of self-confidence. So if a game didn't go well, I take it exceptionally hard. Um, and that took the enjoyment out with a sport for the following six, seven, eight years. So then I, I remember when I was, and I will get to it, but when I was cycling this summer, I was listening to a podcast and it was, this psychologist was on and he was saying, don't conflate what you're good at with what you like. And I, all of a sudden I had, I kind of realized, wait, that's exactly what I did for years. Um, and it got to the stage where in 2018, I just, I took the, I pulled the plug on hurling and I said, you know what? I can't play this at a high level anymore. I'm not enjoying it. I'd spent the previous couple of years not enjoying it. And it was only when I pulled the plug on it and I stepped away and I realized that I didn't miss it, that I kind of was like, okay, what have I done here? I've completely mixed up what I was good at with what I liked just because I was good at hurling didn't mean I liked it and I just think it's something that a lot of people do in life they conflate what they're good at with what they like they might be an excellent engineer but they might hate doing it and they might rather playing the piano and and doing art so I just think it's it's a lesson I kind of learned is is there's a very fine line between what you're good at and what you like doing and the trick is in life not to end up doing what you're good at but end up doing what you like doing so as I said at the start of this, you've had um, I'd say it feels like five years this last year. Yeah, the, the, the last the last 10, 11 months have just been a mix of desperate lows and kind of coming crawling my way back out of it to a kind of level of contentment. I, I can't even describe the last the last five or six months if there's but all these things have happened and if even one of them had happened it would have been enough to deal with in a year let alone let alone all these different things so um yeah it's just been a whirlwind to be honest so your second moment of clarity is is the is do, taking part in the unspoken documentary which is on the rte player and i'd recommend anyone to watch it it's an amazing documentary powerful Raw yes. is a word I've seen a few times raw. used, and it is. Yeah, it is raw. So I suppose I, to give you a bit of a backstory, and your listeners a bit of a backstory, I, I suppose I suffered with an eating disorder for the best part of seven or eight years, um, and I very much hid it and kept it to myself for seven or eight years on the genuine belief that I was going crazy. I was like, There's, I should not be having these thoughts. I should not be feeling this way. I shouldn't have this anxiety around food and what I looked like. I must be going insane, particularly the fact that I was a man. So I things started to spiral in the new year, really, even though it had been going on for six to seven years, it had been very gradual deterioration, but things really started to spiral in the new year to the point where I was having panic attacks and my behaviors were worsening and it was bordering on self-harm. And it got to the stage where I just wasn't able to go into work anymore at the end of April. And I got signed off work on a Thursday. And basically... Long story short, about three days later, I got a phone call from a director who was looking at making a documentary about men with eating disorders that would be funded by RTE. And he basically was asking me to take part. And I said, look, Alan, I said, I'm at rock bottom here. I've just got signed off work. I don't know what was, I don't know what's wrong with me at this stage. I knew there was something wrong, but I didn't have a diagnosis. I was waiting to see a consultant, I said. So I said, I'm waiting to see a consultant. I'm all over the shop. I'm not eating. I just in general, I wasn't well at all. 
And it was panic initially when he asked me, would I be involved? Because I was like, no, absolutely not. And then he had the wherewithal to kind of realize, right, give this lad a little bit of space and we might talk to him again. So he ran me back a few days later and he said, look, the way he sold it to me was, he said, look, I'm making this documentary about memory disorders. I never envisaged that I would find someone at the start of their treatment journey who's just hit rock bottom that might potentially allow a camera crew to follow him. And he said, I could look for this situation for 10 years and never find it. And it was when he said that to me, it was a real moment of clarity. It was, it went from fear and panic and I cannot do this, no way in hell to wait. This has the potential to be extremely powerful. And it was almost as like something took over me and it was like, okay, there's an onus on me to do this. This is now an opportunity, not just for me to get better. And yes, I need to get better, but there's an opportunity here whereby I can let someone see inside this process and this treatment journey and show that one, it's not as scary as it seems and two, that it might actually be possible to get better here. And it was very, it was a very strange feeling. It was, it's, it's, it's perfectly fitting with the name of your podcast, Moments of Clarity, because it was just a very, very perfectly clear moment in my mind when I said, okay, I have to do this. There's just an onus on me to do this. And I didn't even second guess it. It was like, okay, this is happening. Um, and to go into treatment and go on that journey of even waiting to see the consultant and seeing the consultant and going to my first day in treatment and having a camera crew with me was just the most bizarre, strange, daunting, vulnerable position I think I've ever been in. But I just felt like I had to do it. Must have been unbelievable. And you, uh, you said, was it week three that when you went into it, that that was... That it was a couple of weeks it wasn't like you got better straight away this- yeah so I was in there for I was in there for eight weeks overall and obviously the camera crew kind of followed me throughout but it was funny I went in and I think I was so overwhelmed with isolation for so long and so much of my pain was caught up in the isolation that I went in and I met all these people who suffered with the same thing in the first week or two and I kind of went I went on this skyrocket high and I was like, okay, this is, there's hope here. I can get better. I can get better. And the consultant said to me, and she warned me about this. And so did the psychologist. She was like, this will get harder. You're going to have to work through what lies beneath all this. So on week three, I crashed and burned. And it was when I had this kind of other moment of clarity in life, I completely crashed and burned and the therapy was getting quite intensive. And I really kind of started to question everything. I kind of started to question all the charity work I'd done in the past. I kind of questioned why I was a physio, why I wanted to help people, why I was doing all this cycling, why I was planning to cycle across the continent, why I played hurling at such a high level. I questioned everything. And I had this very clear, it wasn't in any one clear moment, but over the course of a week, I kind of had this moment of clarity where I kind of realized, do you know what? All these things that I've achieved and all these things that I've done and me being the high achiever type personality that I am, all the boxes I've ticked off, they're meaningless really because all they were doing was papering over cracks in my self-esteem and my self-worth and my self-confidence. There was no point doing them all when I didn't fundamentally like who I was and when I wasn't fundamentally okay with who I was because at the end of the day, they'll give you brief moments of respite from that pain and that self-hatred. But ultimately, 
they won't make me feel any better about myself. And none of them did. None of the things I achieved over the years took away that kind of self-loathing and self-hatred that I had of myself. And it was a very clear moment of clarity sitting there being like, I cannot go and cycle across Europe in two or three months' times or I cannot do anything else in future until fundamentally I become okay with who I am. And then, you know, you, you finished, was it the 28th of June? Is that right? Was that when you finished this yeah. year? Uh, that, that was when I, I went into treatment on the 28th of June and I finished oh. on the 20, and I finished on the 20th of August and I finished the cycle to Athens on the 28th of October. So four months from the day I walked into treatment to the day I landed in Athens on my bicycle. <laughs> So those those um, months coming up to before you went in, you were training, planning the cycle. Yeah. So that must have been very. Um... Yeah, I walked into I walked in to meet the consultant on the first day, and she looked at me and kind of laughed and said, "Here, boy, that cycle's not happening." <laughs> like understandably so, yeah. um, but luckily they gave me their blessing um, that I could do it by the time I left treatment. Do you know what I I. I was very lucky and the consultant and clinical psychologist have both said this to me. They got me in the nick of time. If, if I had been gone another two or three months longer, they wouldn't have been able to turn things around so fast. And when I say turn things around, that's not to say that I'm perfect now. And I'm not like, even the last two or three days have been a struggle with food, but I've been eating and I've been doing everything I need to. And I still get thoughts, but um, it was, they were able to turn it around in the sense where I was healthy enough to go and do the cycle and whereby my quality of life had returned and that they could trust me that I could do what I needed to do. But if I, if I, if I, I fell over at the right time is what I'd say, you know. And, you know, during that, while you were there in that documentary line, you said, you've used it a few times, you you felt tormented. You felt like you could never get out of it. You felt that even while you were in there at that time. Yeah. Yeah, I did. It took a long, long time for that to go. Um, And I was, I was completely tormented by this. Like this had been going on seven or eight years and particularly in the past two years, my minute to minute existence had kind of deteriorated. Like my quality of life had completely gone from the outside. It still looked like I was functioning fairly well, but my mind was just consumed by anxiety around food, anxiety around putting on weight, panic attacks, paranoia about what I looked like um, to the point where I couldn't really enjoy anything and that torment went on for a long long time and it was only really towards kind of the second half of my my stay in treatment that it gradually kind of started to settle and subside and a lot of the kind of mental torture started to go away Um, but it, it takes time of course and I mean you know that's what the reason why the documentary I think is so powerful and a game changer in a way is because People don't see that, you know, eating disorders with men, you know. Yeah. Even no, I think absolutely. you said it, didn't you? Or your brother, you know, that they don't yeah. think that that is my, exists. Yeah. As my brother, yeah, there's a scene in it where me and my brother are sitting at the table and he said, as Cahill said to me, Cahill said, well, I see him eat every so often. So, and he's not emaciated and I don't think he's going into the bathroom and making himself sick. So Cahill was like, I don't see how he can have an eating disorder here. And <laughs> It's funny, Cahill has since said to me, he's like, geez, I, I wasn't really clued into what I was saying there. But like, how could he have been? Cahill was reflecting what 95% of society assume it, an eating disorder is, whereas 85% of people who have eating disorders aren't underweight. Um, and the largest cohort of people who have eating disorders are not emaciated and don't necessarily make themselves get sick in the toilet every day. 
Um, and it's just, I suppose, that's why it was such an important piece of film because it really challenged the stereotypes and really challenged what an eating disorder looks like and who an eating disorder can affect. And I think that's probably been the most powerful aspect of it. And athletes are 16 times more likely an athlete than a non-athlete, which is amazing. Yeah, so you can, and, and this is, I said it in an interview a, a week or two ago, like even if you take the the kind of the sporting world in Ireland take professional rugby and uh, GA both ladies football and men's and kind of the, the League of Ireland soccer I guarantee you there's some of those athletes out there with eating disorders there's no question in my mind you know that's why I think this documentary is so great to see because I think you know no no different than um Keith Earls a few weeks ago in the late show. I think mm. when we open up and we talk, you know, because what you did and what Keith Earls did is that um, you opened up yourself to scrutiny in the public and doing this as well. And I think that's great and you're commendable for doing that. It's very brave and the right thing to do because it will help other people. I just don't, I, I don't know, the, the whole brave thing doesn't really sit comfortable with me. I just... I don't think anything bad can ever come from just being vulnerable and just being authentic and just being yourself. And I think society is improving and I think the stigma around a lot of these topics is is drastically improving. Um, But I still think people are afraid to, for whatever reason, just be their authentic selves. Like I, I, even amongst my own, peers and my friends like it's the thing we laugh and joke about now but I know that there's a respect there as well like I'm the one who you won't have to second guess how I am when I tell you how I am if someone asks how, how I am I'll tell them and um, there's no there's no kind of there's no uh, brick wall up in front of me it's it's an honest answer um, and it's just because I've got learned gotten to the stage where I'm just kind of not afraid to be who I am and just be honest about these things you know and it just makes life that bit easier Exactly. That's a lovely message. So your next one from Ackle to Athens, which really caught my attention. And that's kind of how I got to know you. Um, I was following you every day, listen, you know, on Instagram and looking at your each day, looking at the reports and where you were. And uh, I felt like I was on the cycle myself. <laughs> <laughs> it was a. Uh... It was, do you know what, it, it was actually a, a significant enough effort to keep the social media thing updated while we were going along for 58 days. But I, yeah. I knew it was, I knew it was important to give an insight and be honest about the good days and the bad days. And I think there was, I had two big moments of clarity on that 58 day trip. And one of them was a very negative experience. And then the other one was a very positive experience, but they both left me with very positive messages um on day 30 so it was a 5000 kilometer journey by bike from Ackle to Athens and self supported which means we had no support van which meant every bit of gear we wanted to bring every bit of food every bit of water every spare part every item of clothing we had to carry on our bikes um and it was all going pretty well and mentally i was coping um bear in mind i had just left treatment for an eating disorder 10 days previous um up until about day 30 into the 30s it got really hard and I, I i was given a very valuable lesson on day 38 and it kind of offered me a very clear moment of clarity by the end of the day so basically we were up in we were in croatia in the mountains in a national park 
and this red weather warning came in for storm and torrential rain and high winds and we were up in the mountains and there was no visibility and we were like right we can't cycle today it's, it's just like yes there's a there's a fine line between slogging out and being tough and being stupid and we were veering towards being stupid so we didn't cycle on day 37 and then we woke up on day 38 and the red weather warning was due to lift and it hadn't lifted we were still in the mountains there was thick dense fog everywhere it was pissing rain high winds and we were left with no other real choice because we had a schedule to keep. We were like, oh God, we're going we're gonna to have to cycle through this. And because we hadn't cycled the previous day, it meant we had to double up our distance. So it was about five degrees out, torrential rain, about 20 or 30 meters of visibility. We had to go up this giant mountain pass. Um, and we had about 160 or 170K to do. I think we topped out at 168K. Um, and I woke up and I had been struggling for a couple of days just with the amount of food we had to eat. So for me to stay fueled properly, I had to eat about five or 6,000 calories a day. And I had just left treatment for an eating disorder, as I said. So that was extremely tough. So I woke up that morning and I just, I was like, I don't know if I can do this, lads. And I was broken mentally and emotionally. I was completely broken. I kind of broke down in the toilet and I came out to the lads and I think they could tell I had been crying and I, I just didn't think I could um, could get on the bike and the two of them were just like, you have to do it. We're just going to have to go. And I'll put it to this way. I learned the lesson that day that you should never write a day off and you should always show up because if it wasn't for the two lads that day, I wasn't going to show up. If I was on my own there, I just wouldn't have got on that bike because mentally I was shot. Physically I was shot. Um, and I had a very, by the time we got to where we were staying that night, 168k later, I had a very clear kind of moment of clarity where I was like, right, you've learned a lesson here. This morning you were in the depths of despair and you were broken. But even though you were forced to, you still showed up and you still gave yourself a chance. And the day actually turned and the day actually changed. And by the time we were 120, 130k in, my mood had lifted a bit. The sun had come out, the rain had gone away, it had warmed up. And the last hour or two, I'd actually borderline say I enjoyed. And it was just a very clear moment, as you said, um, a real moment of clarity where it was just like a life lesson. Don't ever write yourself off. Don't ever write a day off because it can always change, you know. I love that idea. Like I, my, my last family holiday feels like many years ago, but it was 2019. We, I did Tour de Mont Blanc with my kids that were like yeah. seven to 14 around Mont Blanc, hut to hut. So you had to walk Amazing. to the next hut. But um, each day there was a pass. And when we get to the top of the pass, my youngest son, you know, there was a lot of walking and um, I'd always go to him on the top of the pass. Now, now see what you feel now, because you, you, you'd have a high. I'm sure you had that. You Don't yeah. you? You get the high when you get to you the do. pass. And, and I use it now all the time, even going to a match or doing anything, doing homework. I go, remember that day you couldn't think you could get up to the pass and you did it and how you felt. So those type of experiences, I just think you can bottle them and use for anything in life, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. And people talk about kind of resilience and how do you build resilience? I actually, I, I genuinely believe this. I think you can only build ex- resilience through experience because it, it's you have something to tap into. It means just like that with your son, if he's, fed up one day and doesn't want to do his homework or it's a really cold day and he doesn't want to go out and play a match he can tap into going up that walking up that mountain pass around Mont Blanc with you and his and his family and you can tap into it and at least if you have something to tap into you know there's something in your brain that says wait I've done worse than this before I can do it and that's the importance of doing those things isn't it yeah of course getting resilience, and, yeah. you know it comes from experience really there's no magic bullet there's no silver bullet when it comes to resilience you know um, and were people advising you not to go on the trip? 
it was yeah I'll be, look I'll be very honest with you Fergal there were a thousand and one reasons not to cycle from Akko to Athens even before I got an eating disorder and before I went into treatment and then after that there were a million and one reasons not to do it but yeah and there were people yeah there were plenty of people who didn't think it was a good idea and probably said do you know what you really shouldn't be doing this um once the consultant said to me and she was very honest and so was the clinical psychologist they were like look we're not saying this isn't a risk this is a bit of a risk but we do think you can handle it we know how much it means to you like i i checked in with my dietitian and my clinical psychologist every two weeks while i was away so once they gave me to go ahead i gave myself enough backing that i said okay we'll get this done um, and i believed myself i could do it but yeah there was look when you when you eating disorder and treatment aside when you put yourself out there this much and you say i'm going to take on this challenge there'll always be people who will tell you all the reasons why you shouldn't do it and if you listen to all those reasons and you listen to all those people you'd never do anything in life you know so if you can be sure of yourself and sure of your own intentions and sure of what you're doing you know yourself better than anyone and then that's just where that's what gives you the ability to block out the noise and when you arrived in athens then you know that feeling must have been amazing, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, day 58, it was just, do you know what? It was, and it was, I have I know we only usually talk about three, but I've had a lot of moments of clarity. You know, <laughs> and, day, and, and day 58 was definitely one of them. Like we got into we got into Athens and we were greeted by some of our family. And I just remember it, we were about 5K outside Athens and you could see we were coming in and you could see the Acropolis up ahead of us. and um, I just remember getting this weird kind of saying to myself, and it sounds a bit cheesy and cliche, but I just remember saying to myself, I was like, Cormac, you can literally do anything, like anything you set your mind to, you can do it. Because I got a pacemaker when I was 18 and technically with a pacemaker, you shouldn't be overly fit or athletic. And I, since that pacemaker, it started in turn just a whole different kind of series of events over 10 years that's led me kind of to cycle around Ireland twice for charity and do talks in schools. And then I went into treatment for an eating disorder and 10 days later, I cycled across Europe. And despite all that, we've, and despite all the hardship and the mental turmoil that I've had, we've still done, I've still, along with my cousin Stephen and my friend Noel, we've still pulled off these events we, and we've raised over 100,000 euro for charity over the last nine, 10 years, despite all those things and despite the hardship. And it was a real kind of moment. It was just coming into Athens and I was kind of like, do you know what? You, you're living proof that as long as you just put your mind to something um, and you give yourself the opportunity to do it and you believe that you can do it and you're not afraid to fail, you can literally do anything. Because by right, with what's happened to me over the last nine, 10 years between the pacemaker, my mental health struggles, the eating disorder, and trying to forge a career in physiotherapy and forge a, a, a kind of a success in sport, I shouldn't have been able to do any of those things. And yet that's still what I'm most proud of. We've raised over 100,000 euro for charity um, and for charities that mean a lot to us. So um, yeah, it's definitely the moment of clarity that I have and I'd, 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 I'd try and instill it into other people is that no matter what your circumstance, you can do whatever the hell you want to do. You know, you can achieve it. You can achieve anything. And how are you doing now since you came back and gone back to normal life? Um, I'm not too bad. Yeah, like food wise and the whole eating disorder thing, 
having to eat five or six thousand calories a day for 58 days um, has kind of helped me in terms of being at home because like there was no structure when I was away I was eating out of eating lunch on the car park of a Lidl or an Aldi or whatever we could find putting together the weirdest concoctions of food that we could find just to get the calories in so since I've had structure and nutritious meals again and being able to cook for myself since I've been home food has been a lot easier so in that sense that's been a positive and um, there's that whole adjustment piece after you do anything in life and, and you have to kind of slowly bring yourself back down to earth and um, which at times is 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 uh, is tough like i'll be very honest and say i've had to catch myself when the mind kind of starts saying oh right now what are you going to do next and i've had to really try catch myself and be like stop you've just cycled across the continent you've just been in treatment for an eating disorder cool the jets and just sit with this that's been hard that's been the hard part to not let my mind wander and think right where are we going next what are we doing next so i've had to really keep that in check but for the most part i've I've been pretty good and i'm very in a general sense things if you had offered me how I am now six months ago when I was in the depths of despair I would have never believed it was possible I feel like the weight of the world is off my shoulders I'm I'm can way way more content with who I am and so yeah no I'm 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 in a pretty good place great to hear that so thank you so much Cormac you're an inspiration I have to say and and even though I know you're saying here I'm thinking about it but I'll be watching I'll be waiting for your next project (laughs) <laughs> we'll see right, give, it, give it till after Christmas and, and we'll see what comes down the line I hope you enjoyed our guest this week I would ask that you please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that a new episode will appear in your library every week I would also really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review so that others discover this podcast Six Seconds is a global non-profit dedicated to growing emotional intelligence worldwide Our work involves supporting individuals, teams and organisations to develop and practice emotional intelligence to help increase personal and organisational effectiveness. For more information on emotional intelligence and how 6 Seconds Europe can help you, please go to 6seconds.org slash EU. Take care and see you next week. You are listening to Moments of Clarity, Journeys with EQ by 6 Seconds Europe.